you doing this morning? All right, we sound pretty amped about life right now. If you were new to Southridge in the last maybe up to a year and you haven't had the opportunity to, uh, to, dis- to go to Discover Southridge, today that's happening and it's right outside the doors. There's a monster blue tent and so I think that you can't miss it. And Pastor Scott will be at the tent after the service. Opportunity for you to go to meet him if you haven't had an opportunity to do that yet. Opportunity for you to go and ask any questions that you have about Selfridge, about how we can best assist you and your family. And uh, so I'd encourage you to take uh, advantage of that and uh, go out there and you can uh, meet Pastor Scott. Uh, my wife, Stephanie, and I have lived in the Raleigh-Durham area for just over two years now. And one thing that we've picked on pretty quick is that people love their local sports here. Is that cool to say? There's college teams and stuff. I don't know. Is there any Wolfpack fans here today? Okay. Maybe a few, uh, maybe a few Duke fans. I don't know. If, does Duke have fans? Okay. Duke has fans. Okay. Um, and then the other one, what's it called? Uh, oh, the Tar Heels. Any, any fans here for them? Okay. We grew up um, University of Michigan fans because we're from the freezing cold state of Michigan. And uh, as a family, we would gather every Saturday morning around the TV to watch Michigan football. So that meant for us, like, if it was, like, noon kickoff or 3.30 kickoff, it always involved food and TV. That was our family time, and it was awesome. But what's unique about it is being a Michigan fan my entire life, I never went to a game until 1997. And then it was 12 years later before I went to another game. I had a friend give me tickets to Michigan-Notre Dame, which is one of Michigan's uh, big uh, rivals. And uh, I was really excited to go. I took a friend of mine, and we were just kind of freaking out because Michigan Stadium is the largest stadium in the country. It holds 115,000 people, and it is just mass chaos when you're in there. We were starting a freshman quarterback, and so we were excited about seeing what he's going to look like, and Michigan was down. They had the, the last possession of the game, and the freshman quarterback drove us all the way down the field, and we get down about the 10-yard line, and with about 10 seconds left, he rolls out to the left side, and he throws a touchdown pass to a senior named Greg Matthews, and Michigan wins. What do you think the response was of the stadium? Not this, okay? They were, they were freaking out. Right? Everyone was freaking out. It was like hugging people I don't know and it just high-fiving all over the place. And it was, it was uh, rather exciting, right? We were all responding with a resonating response to what we were witnessing on the field. And we were in it to win it as fans, right? We were so excited. It took us about two and a half hours to get our car out of Ann Arbor to be able to get any way to be ahead home because the amount of people that leave all at the same time. And it was an incredible experience. And maybe you've experienced that with your team. A time where you've gone and it's been a very fun win or something crazy happened and you along with all the other fans are all in total agreement that this was awesome, right? Maybe it was at a kid's sporting event. Maybe for you it was going to a concert, right? And you're at 5, 10, 15,000 people, maybe 20,000 people at this concert and everybody knows all the words to the songs, right? Everyone's resonating with the response together. We've all experienced things like that before. Well, today we're going to be in Revelation 5. And uh, we're going to, the Apostle John is the author of Revelation, and he has a title called the living, as a living martyr, because at one point, uh, he was boiled in oil for his love for Jesus, and then he didn't die from it, but he was put on an island. And while he's sitting on this island, uh, the Lord gives him this vision, and he's writing down everything that he sees. And it's going to be a resonating response from John. It's a game changer for him. Which leads us to our big idea for the morning. Our big idea for the morning is, is simply this, uh, the way we live the way you live reflects the one you follow. The way that you live your life reflects the one that you follow. And when I was at the Michigan football game, all 115,000 fans were all in it for one team, right? It was an exciting time. 
But when it comes to life, we typically follow one of two people. We're either going to follow what God wants and God has for us, or we're going to follow what and do what we want to do. That's, that's how it typically plays out in our lives. Did you realize that your view of God is always being reflected in your life? How you're living your life is actually demonstrating your views and your thoughts on God. And I'm a firm believer. When I receive an accurate view of who who God is, I get a very clear view of who I am. And so our goal this morning is for us to see who we are without Jesus so we can embrace the beauty of who we are with him. And I believe that we'll be greatly encouraged this morning. And if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, um, I believe there's a certain level of urgency that should be involved in our life. Um, I've, I've shared with you about my wife's battle with cancer many times, um, but she, for seven years, battled cancer, and we, she, she had two bone marrow transplants. She had both of her hips replaced by the time she was 28. Like, we've experienced everything there is to experience in the medical world. But what's interesting about it is that we demonstrated incredible urgency to get her, to get her wherever we had to get her to get her healthy. And so for us living in Michigan at the time, that meant for, that we were driving five hours in the car every week. At one point, we flew to Houston to go to MB Anderson to get a second opinion on her care. We demonstrated incredible urgency. How come, though, we don't demonstrate urgency in our walk with Jesus like that? And you can think about your own walk with the Lord and, and areas in your life where you've demonstrated incredible urgency. But then we think about going through living life and it's like our relationship with Jesus is just, it's kind of out there, and, but it's not really part of our, our daily interaction of our life. And so I'm like, why is that? Why is it so easy for us to live that way? And maybe you're in a position where it's like, Josh, I have all this time to figure out my relationship with God down the road. I just want to say, do you really? Like, we don't really know what our, our numbers of our days are, right? We don't know how much time we have left here. Maybe you're in a position you're like, no, I want to fix my relationships that I have here and then later I'll get to that. It's like, really? Your relationship with the creator of the universe who can change your eternal outcome? You want to wait on that? Maybe we want the benefits that the gospel provides, but we don't want to live for Jesus, which just means that we love the stuff we gain from God more than the benefit of actually being with God. Maybe you've come to the conclusion that living for Jesus is boring, And I want you to understand something that me and you have not met the same Jesus because he is a game changer. And so I believe this, that no urgency actually equals no passion. No urgency equals no passion. And if we're losing our passions for our Savior, that then means that sin is not far behind. And so I'm a firm believer that we need to sleep, live, eat, drink the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the most important thing in our life. And he's the most important person in this world. And he has something significant to offer us. And so if we're going to live a life that reflects Jesus, don't we have to know who he is? We have to know who it is that we're trying to follow. And so this morning, I want us to simply ask this question. Is Jesus worthy to be followed? Is Jesus worthy to be reflected in your life? And so we're going to start in Revelation chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, please, please turn them with me. The words will also be on the screen. In Revelation 4, remember, John is getting a vision of the throne room of God. And so he's writing down what it is that he's seeing. Right? In the middle of this, he's noticing someone who's sitting on the throne in the throne room. Right? And look what they're saying to the one on the throne. He says this at the end of verse 8. It says, Day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, 
the 24 elders fell down before him who was seated on the throne and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. You see, what we're seeing here in the throne room of that, they're just constantly bringing praise to God. They're shouting worth to God. Now, the word revelations simply means to make something known. So that means this, that God has something for us that he wants us to know this morning. There's something specific that he wants us to embrace and something specific he wants us to understand. And we're going to see the the apostle John also taking the same truth that we are. And he's going to come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is incredibly awesome. That's going to be the conclusion. But as we go through Revelation 5, Let's reflect once again on the greatness of Jesus as we evaluate how we can make much of him in our lives. So let's pick it up in chapter 5, verse 1. We're jumping right in to the throne room, and let's enter back into that space again. Verse 1 says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on back, sealed with seven seals. So remember... In chapter 4, they're encircling the throne. They're shouting that he is holy, holy, holy. But now John is zooming in even more to the one who's on the throne. And he's witnessing that they have a scroll in their hand. And it tells us that this scroll has writing on the inside and writing on the back of it. And it's sealed with seven seals. This scroll is significantly important, right? This scroll contains the program of God. Inside the scroll contains God's plan for judgment against the world because of sin, but it also contains God's plan for redemption of us, for salvation for us. And it's extremely important that we're able to wrap our minds somewhat around what is in this scroll. It says that it's sealed with seven seals, which is actually a perfect number. It actually gives us the completeness of the perfection of God's plan. Now, the prophet Ezekiel also had a vision of this scroll. And he said that this scroll contains incredible lamentation, meaning it's an expression of grief and sorrow. It contains mourning and woe. It contains incredibly great distress. Now look at verse 2 and 3 with me. It says, And I, speaking of John, saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. So John He's continuing to tell us what it is that he's seeing. He's continuing to tell us what it is that he's experiencing. And he says, I saw a strong angel say this, who is worthy to open the scroll? And then it tells us in verse three that this crazy search begins. They're going through all of heaven and all of earth looking for someone who might be worthy to open the scroll, which simply means this, that they're looking for someone who has the character, someone who has the rank, someone who has the ability to carry out God's program. God's plan for redemption, for salvation, and God's plan for judgment against sin. And so I think to myself, why are the archangels, Michael and Gabriel, not stepping up to the plate? They're not stepping up to the plate because they're saying they're not worthy. What about all the people in Hebrews chapter 11, right? Our incredible faith chapter. None of those guys are standing up, standing up to the, the plate to take the scroll. And so it comes to my mind, Abraham didn't step up. What about Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Job, Moses, David, Daniel, Peter, Paul? No one steps up to take the scroll because no one is worthy. No one has the character. No one has the quality. No one has the ability to carry out God's program. So look at John's response in verse 4. And I began to weep loudly because no one was unworthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Ever been in a position where you've 
wept uncontrollably. Like you just are tears flowing down your face, like uncontrolled. You just, you, you can't even gather yourself. It tells us that John is weeping loudly, right? He's, he's realizing that if no one takes this scroll and has the ability to carry it out, we're all in big trouble, right? We're in big trouble. And so his heart is feeling heavy and it potentially looks like a sad day in the throne room of God. But as we progress, start in verse 5, we're going to get a picture of God. We're going to then receive a picture of us and then see what our response should be to who God is. So let's take a look at verse 5. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. What, is the, what do the elders say to John? Hey, John, stop crying. Hey, John, you're weeping pretty loud, but you can go ahead and stop that now. Hey, John, stop what you're doing in behold, it says, which literally means to stare. It means to gaze. He's like, stare at the lion. The lion is here. You see, Jesus is described as a lion here. Why a lion? Well, the Jews thought that Jesus would come or their savior would come and uh, break them off from Rome, right? That he would come and get rid of all their enemies. But Jesus didn't come and do what they expected. Right? You can unpack more of this lion phrase if you want to look at your own time. In Genesis 49, 8 through 10, there's more understanding of what it means to be the lion. But the elders say, hey, John, stop crying and start staring at the one who's worthy to take the scroll and carry out God's agenda. That person is here. And how is it? Why is he worthy? It says in verse 5 that he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. And so the thing that comes to my mind is simply this. How is it that the lion conquers? How is it the lion, that the lion actually conquers? Look what it says in verse uh, 6. It says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, he says. You see, what John is witnessing here is a game changer for him. It's something that's changing his perspective. And if I believe if we would reflect on these verses, it will change our lives as well. So the question we're asking is, how is it that the lion conquered? What comes to mind? Well, according to verse 6, he conquered by becoming a lamb. 28 times in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ is described as a lamb. Four times in the New Testament, outside of the book of Revelation. One time in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 53, and every single time, the, the, the phrase, the lamb, represents who Jesus is and what he has done. And we know, uh, for those of you who've grown up in church, right, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and at the Passover, they were told to kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorframe, which was a, actually a, a picture of the coming of Jesus and the blood that he's going to offer to provide redemption. But when I see... Jesus being described as a lamb, like that's how he conquered? So that means that Jesus the lion didn't come with fire and with swords, but he, be, he came by becoming a lamb. That's how he conquered. I don't know if you know much about sheep, but I don't. And I just don't think sheep are very intimidating. I mean, I've heard things about sheep like this, that they can be drinking water and they can frighten themselves with their own reflection and have a heart attack and die. Like, what? Like that, that's weird, isn't it? Other things I've heard is that they can fall over on their back, and when it rains, they can drown if they're on their back. I don't, under, I don't understand, right? It's weird. 
But here's a true story for you, something that I do know. In Turkey in 2005, there's multiple shepherds that had all their sheep together. And one of the sheep, there's 1,500 of them total, one of the sheep ran off the cliff. What do you think the other 1,499 did? I mean, he's going off the cliff. I might as well go off the cliff. All of them. 450 of the sheep died. Right? Because they're just not very intelligent, right? And so when I see a lamb being described, like, that's my savior, a lamb, really? Like, I'm thinking to myself, this doesn't make logical sense in my mind, but here's the key. The lamb that John is seeing is not just the lamb, but he is also a lion, which gives us the picture of this, that Jesus Christ is the God-man. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. And John is saying that the lion lamb is, tells us here in verse 6 that he was slain. Do you see that? Look at verse 6. It says, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The word slain simply means to be killed in a violent way, right? To be crushed. And so John is seeing Jesus not on the ground like someone who's been violently killed, but how does it describe him? It says a lamb is standing. You see, Jesus is standing in the throne room as though he has just won a significant battle. And he stands there with marks of sacrifice all over his body where he went to the cross for me and you and he paid our punishment and he changes our lives from the inside out from that moment. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture is 2 Corinthians 5.21. And it just simply says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me tell you why I love this verse. Because this verse doesn't tell me to do anything. It just tells me what it is that Jesus has done, doesn't it? Which is huge for me and you. Right? God is not saying, get yourself all figured out before you come to me. He's saying, come to me broken. Come to me messy. And the result is that you receive the righteousness of God. That's amazing. The reality is that Jesus changes everything. I believe that this is the greatest deal on the face of the planet. Anyone like deals here? Right? My wife likes to do couponing. Anyone into couponing? No one wants to claim it. I'm sure, that, I'm sure some of you are in here. Okay? But she likes to get good deals. When I was a kid, my older brother Jason and I, who's the shepherding pastor here, we used to collect basketball and baseball cards. Right? At one point, I got a whole box of, of NBA hoops cards. And one, one of my cards was the David Robinson rookie card. Pretty awesome, right? And so Jason and I took it to our local baseball card shop, and the guy told me he'd give me a whopping five bucks for it as a 10-year-old. And I'm like, five bucks? I could buy like 10 cheeseburgers from McDonald's with that. Okay. Went back a few months later, and the card was for sale for $336. Was that a good deal? No. No, it was a terrible deal for me, right? But the deal that Jesus is offering us is simply that, hey, I'm going to come. I'm the lion. I am God. I am going to become man. Take on the flesh. Come stare us in the face. And I'm going to go die on the cross for your sins so that you can come to know me and experience eternal life with him. You see, the lion Jesus gets the victory through the tactics of the lamb. Now look at verse 7 and 8 with me as we continue to unpack this vision. It says, and he went and he took the scroll, speaking of the lion lamb Jesus. He took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. I love what's happening here because Jesus is going to go take the scroll. That means that God is saying, like, Jesus has the authority. He has the character. He has the rank. He has the ability to carry out the agenda. So look what happens when Jesus takes the scroll in verse 8. 
It says the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb, right? Praise breaks out all over the universe when Jesus takes the scroll. It's a proof of his deity that he is God. And so in Revelation 4, we see them encircling the throne, shouting that he is worthy, God the Father. And in chapter 5, we see him bringing the same praise to the Son, Jesus Christ, for who he is, that they are worthy. What does the word worthy mean? The word worthy means deserving of our effort, of our attention, and our respect. And that's what Jesus Christ is worthy of. And so they're all falling at his feet, which gives us a picture that we do not worship a baby in a manger or a corpse on a cross, but we worship the living, reigning Lamb of God. Right? And this, this, this worshiping that's taking place is happening because of who he is and because of what he's done and because of where he's located. You see, he's not here on this earth. He's not in an empty tomb, but he is the one who's carrying out the very program of God. And so we get another picture. I want to flip back to chapter 4, verse 8, one more time. And it says this, it says, Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In our language today, we emphasize things with exclamation points when we write, correct? In Jesus' day, he would bring everyone together and he would say things like this, Truly, 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 I say unto you. He'd give a three-peat of a word. And that meant, listen up. What I'm about to say is extremely important. And I want you to understand something. That the Bible says that God is a God of love, but the Bible never says that God is a God of love, love, love. The Bible says that God is a God of grace, but the Bible never ever says that God is a God of grace, grace, grace. Please understand that nothing is emphasized more in the Bible than the fact that Jesus Christ is holy, holy, holy. That he is separate than us. That he is outside of us. That he is greater than us. And the reality is every spiritual blessing that we receive, his love, his grace for us, his mercy, always falls out of the fact that he is first and foremost holy. Chapter 5, verse 9. After Jesus takes the scroll, after praise breaks out all over and the elders fall down and worship him, look what it says. And they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. I love this phrase in verse 9. They sang a new song. That's an awesome picture. Very few places, and this might be the only one, where we actually see angels singing. Many times they're proclaiming the words of Jesus throughout Scripture, but here it says they're singing a new song, and this song they're singing is always about the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's always about a song of redemption. And one of my favorite psalms, it's Psalm chapter 40. It tells us that we are stuck in a pit of sin and that Jesus has taken us out of our pit of sin. He's put us on a firm ground for the first time in our life and he gives us a new song, it says. It's a song that reflects the work of Jesus. It's a song about how he is worthy because of his character, because of his abilities, because of his rank. And this new song is really important because it is the best song that those who are saved can sing. There's not a better song we can sing than the fact that Jesus Christ is worthy, that he is holy, and that he's deserving of our highest praise. And so the reality is how we live our life reflects the one we follow. Is this the one you're following today? The one who's holy, the one who is worthy. Look what it says in verse 10. It says, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Right? So we go from um, being citizens of this world to being a kingdom dweller in his kingdom. 
That's an incredible trade, right? That's an incredible deal for me and you. We have an opportunity now to reflect our king, to live a life, to make much of him. And then it tells us in verse 10 that we are priests to our God, which just simply means this, that we have access to God. We have access to Jesus whenever we want it. All right, that's the, one of the awesome things about being a part of his kingdom. Whenever we want Jesus, we can go to Jesus. Which is really important for me and you, right? And it tells us in verse 9 that you have ransomed people from God. You, you catch that word in verse 9, ransom? What's a ransom? A ransom is a payment that is sufficient enough to erase our debt to God the Father. So here's what happens. Is there's a huge debt between me and God. And there's nothing I can do to change this debt. No matter how well I perform, no matter how obedient I am, nothing's going to erase the debt. And so what God does is he comes to us first, and he brings Jesus into the scene. And Jesus makes a sacrifice for us, and his sacrifice is perfect obedience. And it allows us now to have a proper and appropriate relationship with God the Father. You see, Jesus pays our ransom because he is the redeemer. A redeemer pays the debt of someone else. It's amazing. Now verse 11 says this. It says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing, honor, glory, and might forever and ever. It's an amazing picture for us. Back to verse 11. It says, I looked and I heard. What's he hearing? He's hearing myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands of angels. Literally the myriads just means this. It's the number of the angels is so great it's uncountable. That's how many angels are proclaiming to Jesus. So what are they actually proclaiming? They're shouting his worth. They're saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And then they give him this sevenfold attributes, which actually complete, give us, symbolize his completeness. They say that he is power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. Here's the truth. That is endless worship because of his endless power. It is endless worship because of his endless wealth. It is endless worship because of his endless wisdom. The wisdom idea that he has what is best for you at heart all the time. Endless worship because of his endless honor, glory, blessing. And if we're going to serve a king this morning, how many of us want to serve a king that's powerful, right? Like, that's the kind of king I want to serve. If we're going to serve a king this morning, how many of you want to serve a king that uh, is wealthy? Yep, I would like that. That'd be great. How about a king that is honored, that deserves all the glory, that has all the blessing? Yeah, that's the kind of king that I want to serve. And just in case you didn't know, the God that we serve or that you have the opportunity to serve has all of those attributes. And so our picture of God is simply this is that he is a lion lamb who is worthy because he is holy and he conquered sin and he redeemed us uh, out of this world to bring us, make us a part of his incredible kingdom. And so what is our picture of man? We've got to go back to verse 3 and 4. Let's take a look at it. It says, No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, speaking of John, began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and so what is John doing? John is weeping again, right? Why is he weeping? 
because he realizes that he is unworthy and that no one at that point was found who is worthy to carry out the agenda of God. That means this, that sin will never be dealt with. That means redemption would never arrive on the scene. And so he's in a place where his heart is hurting. It's a deep, loud weeping. Please notice, though, that when Jesus goes and takes the scroll in verse 7, in verse 8, they fall down and they worship him. Here's the reality. Without Jesus, there's only weeping. There's only weeping. That's it. That's all that we get. And that's hard for us. It's hard for us to process that, right? Jesus is worthy of our effort, of our attention, of our respect. And what John is saying is that he's unworthy, that he doesn't deserve anything. And so here's a question to consider. Are you worthy enough to deal with your sinful heart and your eternal outcome? Or can we just all agree that Jesus Christ is worthy of everything and that we are actually nothing? My college soccer coach used to say this phrase a lot, and I told myself I'd never use it because I thought it was kind of lame, but it's, kinda, but it's true. He would say things like this, I love the word Christian because of the last three letters, that I am nothing. Because the truth is when we compare ourselves to Jesus, we learn a lot about ourselves. When we get a fraction of who he is, we learn everything that we didn't know about us, that we are unworthy, that we are unfitting, unsuitable to take the scroll. And so my high school experience, I played soccer and basketball. Soccer is the sport that I was best at, but I really do enjoy basketball. I'm just not very good. And part of the issue is that I've been, that I'm five foot six. I don't know if you can tell that from your seat. And I've been five foot six since I was in sixth grade. Okay. So that's not really great for me either. And so I was like, hey, I like basketball. And then I got to seventh grade. People started growing and I kept staying the same. But my, my junior year of high school, uh, we played uh, a team that was really good. We played them multiple times a year. They were in our conference. Their starting lineup was 6'1", 6'5", 6'5", 6'7", 7 feet. All right, and so we're going to play them in the district championship game. And we lost by over 30 twice to them during the year. So I'm pretty much thinking, unless we make every shot we take, we're not going to win this game, right? And so I decide I'm going to take the jump ball to start the game. And so I go out to half court, and I'm standing there. And on the other side is Chris Kamen, who was drafted number six overall in the 2003 draft. He's been an NBA All-Star one year, right? And I knew, I knew Chris all through middle school and all that we played sports together. He kept growing. I kept staying the same. He turns around and he says to me, Toby, are you serious? I said, Chris, just make it look good. And as the refs getting ready to come to the middle, I noticed that all 1,200 people that are in the gym are on their feet cheering. And I'm like, oh, they're excited about this. And I'm like, wait a second. They think this is cute, right? Like, they're like, this, this is sweet. Look at this little boy out here who's going to try to win this jump ball against this seven-footer. But here's the truth, is that I'm a, I'm a competitive guy, right? I play to win. And so the ref comes out to the middle he blows the whistle. He throws the ball up in the air. And guess what, I, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to attempt to win the jump ball. And guess what happened? I lost. <laughs> Let me tell you what it looked like. Chris came and didn't even jump. <laughs> it went like this. Right? Here's the reality. No matter how many times I take the jump ball against Chris Kamen, it's impossible for me to win. Impossible. Unless he lost his legs and his arms. Right? I'm never going to win. I'm never going to beat him in a jump ball. 
And that's what John is saying. He's like, I am unworthy. Jesus, you are worthy of everything. Right? You're worthy of everything. That you are so much greater than who I am. And so we must consider, who am I without Jesus? And then we get to see who we are with him. Right? Without him, I'm unworthy. With him, I get to be a part of his incredible kingdom where he came and was slain for my sin so I can now live a life of gaining him for eternity but living a life to reflect him in my everyday life. When was the last time that God took you to the mat with the weight of who he is? Because when you have those experiences, it changes your life. And I know that many of us here know the gospel. Right? We know Jesus died. We know Jesus rose. We've heard it before. But what's so easy to happen in our culture is that our heads swell with knowledge, but it leads to our hearts shrinking with passion for his name. And I want you to know that leads to legalism. When our head grows with knowledge and our hearts shrink, it reveals itself with having no passion in our life because we lack grace, we lack love, we lack a care for people. Right? All that demonstrates that we have no passion for Jesus. We must remember and we must consider that the grace and love that we're, we have the opportunity to reflect on our life is the grace and love that Jesus extended to us when we were in an unworthy state. We can receive that. We can have that. And so what happens is we gain Jesus and are part of his kingdom. We actually want less of our king, or we want less of ourselves and we want more of our king, right? That's the transition that typically happens. And I'm a firm believer in this, that your knowledge of God dictates how you live. Your knowledge of God is played out in your life and the choices you make and the actions of your life. And so if you are passionless about your savior, I have questions about your knowledge. Because obviously you don't quite understand yet who you are without Jesus, that you are unworthy, that you don't have anything of eternal value. There's nothing you can do, no performance you can put forward, no obeying all the rules that's going to give you a right position with God. You see, it's only through Jesus that we gain that. And so your knowledge helps you reflect the one you follow. Your knowledge should go into action. And if I was going to sum it up, I would say it this way. I believe that we can have a lot of knowledge about God and yet not know God. And that's not good for me and you. And if you want the gospel to be seen in you, it first has to penetrate through you. And so you must believe in Jesus. He's the answer. And so I want you to consider this question. How are you reflecting Jesus in your life? And if your answer is, well, at Christmas time, we put baby Jesus in the front yard and shine a light on him. Or I I get to wear my Jesus t-shirt to work once a week. Like if we literally have to sit back and think about how is it they're reflecting Jesus? The answer is that we're probably not doing a very good job. We're just missing it. And I, then I think through this. How is it in our lives that we find a way to water down the person of Jesus? And I think, how do you water down holiness? Is your concept of God worthy of who God is? Let's look at the response, the last verse this morning. Verse 14 of chapter 5. It says, And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. I love this response. And here's the question. Can our response be any different? You see, the elders said, amen. That means they agree. Yep, Jesus, you are worthy. Yep, Jesus, you are holy. You are the lion lamb. You have all the power, all the wealth, all the wisdom, all the might, all the glory, all the honor, all the blessing. You have all of it. I agree on my face. That was the action here of the elders. They fall right down. Why? 
Because Jesus deserves our worship. What is worship? We worship God for who he is. He's the lion lamb. We worship him for what he's done. That he's the lamb who's ransomed people for God. And our worship of him is expressed with our lips and with our lives. That we worship God because he is great. And we worship God because he is gracious. And what I love about Revelation 5 is that it puts us at a crossroads with Jesus. Where you have to think through, what are you going to do about Jesus, right? What are you going to do with him? What's your answer? Many of you may come to the conclusion that Jesus was a good prophet or a good rabbi or a good man. Here's the problem with that. The Bible doesn't agree. It doesn't agree. You cannot be a believer in Jesus this morning and not come to the same conclusion that the elders came to in Revelation chapter 5, that he is worthy and he is holy and I should lay my life down before him. And so what is the key? I believe simply it's this laying our life in the shadow of the cross. Following down before him in the shadow of the cross. And when I lay in front of him, I'm allowing myself to be influenced by him. Well, what do I mean by that? Here's the truth. You're gonna reflect the very thing that influences you most in your life. The influences that you allow in your life are going to affect the person that you become. And so when I live in the shadow of the cross, I'm actually making Jesus Christ central to everything that I do. And it actually allows me to stay humble because as I lay there and I stay there, I'm continually reminded of who I am without Jesus and who I can be with Jesus. And that is the greatest thing on the planet for me. I call it the spot of awesomeness. This is the spot where God used ordinary people to produce extraordinary results. It's the spot where you can go and get after the king's work. But here's the truth. The moment that we get up out of the shadow of the cross is the moment that we start being influenced by other things and our pride will swell up in our heart and our lives to have us think that we have it all figured out. We start to forget that we're unworthy. And we start to, we start to forget that he is worthy. And it leads us down a path that isn't good for us where I forget who my need for Jesus. I forget what it is that he's done for me. It's all through influence. And so laying at the foot of the cross actually is de- decreasing my control and increasing the spirit's control in my life. And so what does worship look like in an everyday life then? Because that's what they're doing here in verse 14. It says, they fell down and they worshiped. Here's the reality. Worship is obedience. It's obedience. Worship is more than singing songs, right? It's obedience. It's how you live your life, right? Obedience is a response to the grace of God in my heart and my life, which results in me pleasing God. So this is what I want you to understand about obedience. We're not obedient to God to gain something from God. We're obedient to God because of what we've already gained. There's difference there. Right? One motivates you to live to make much of Jesus. One puts weight of guilt and shame on you. And so we obey God because of what Jesus has done. That Jesus was first obedient on my behalf. And so is Jesus Christ worthy to be reflected in your life? Is he worthy? Because it's through Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross that we go from being worthy of only wrath to being worthy of being a child of his because of the act of of Jesus. And I would say that is the greatest deal on the face of the planet. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this day and the opportunity we have just to gather together and um, just come and and worship you through song, Lord, worship you through uh, hearing about your word. And I just want us to contemplate, Lord, if you're worthy. 
Lord, are you worthy to be reflected in my life? Are you worthy to be made much of in my heart and my life? And so I just pray, Lord, for, for us as a church body, that this is a family here, that we will be a people in our community that, that want to make Jesus known because we realize that he is worth it. He is holy and that he is worthy. Lord, I want to pray for those who don't know Jesus. I just pray that um, you'll help them understand just like you did for me, that I'm a sinner away from you, that I need your incredible act of grace your incredible act of mercy that you've demonstrated at the cross. And so, Lord, we pray to that end, and we pray as we just close out the service that we get an opportunity to, to reflect on some words through music. I just pray that these words and songs will penetrate our heart and our lives as well. In your name, amen.